Hi, I'm Jessica from Tudor Time Machine. Before we start the next episode, I wanted to let you know that we have some holiday Tudor Time Machine merch, only available until December 31st. Give a unique gift and support the podcast. And don't forget to treat yourself too. Declare your interest and your style. Go to our Facebook page and hit the Shop Now button to see our Tudorific designs. Don't miss these items and enjoy this episode of the Tudor Time Machine podcast. Hey ho, Tudor-minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tudor Time Machine, and this is episode 40 of our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. If you're new here, it's best to start at episode one. This is a story project, and it goes in order. We're really excited to be reaching thousands of Tudor-minded people from all over the world. We've had such a great time researching this project and imagining it and sharing it with everybody. And if you're enjoying it, support us. Buy some great Tudor Time Machine swag. Yes, go to our Tudor Time Machine Facebook page, hit the Shop Now button, and you'll see all the wonderful stuff we have for sale. Get a Do You Tudor tea or a nice cozy sweatshirt and support the podcast at the same time. In our last episode, we followed Margaret Wyatt on her visit to her brother. But now our Tudor time machine is taking us back to our friends Constance and Philomena, and it's Valentine's Day. After the reading, we'll have some fun discussing the history beyond our tale and making connections between then and now. Read on, Jesse. Chapter 40, The Arundel Inn, in which Philomena prepares for St. Valentine's and all the ladies run for love. Curse you, you flock of gaggling geese. Mistress Philomena must write each letter perfectly. Remember the consequences, the desolation when the ladies' names were confused. Alice's passion amused Philomena, and her wagging tongue might distract the jumble of impatient girls that crowded her chamber and flooded out the door, across the landing and down the stairs. It made her feel a warmth, even with her mother missing. Philomena herself had always loved St. Valentine's Day, and this festival game was the heart of it all. Marianne said, Alice, we have heard the tale of the bad writing before. Go down the stairs, Honor, you're pushing me. You have not heard it as I tell it, Alice insisted. I was there, I was there, besides Mistress Millicent, as close as the Virgin was to Christ when they pried him off the cross. I am a witness, not a common historian. See, see how our Mistress Philomena takes her mother's place. Alice began to sway. Oh, you young girls, pushing, shoving, crying like the Israelites to Moses, beseeching Mistress Philomena. But what do you know of history? You young chicks, you have no mind for the past. You only pray the lad you dream will choose you. Oh, Mistress Marianne, how I love you. Oh, Alice, for pity's sake, Marianne tossed her head. Philomena penned Mistress Madeline Babington carefully onto a scrap of paper and dropped it into the decorated box at her feet. She greeted the next in line, Winifred Gresham, a gentlewoman from Milk Street. The highborn loved the St. Valentine's game as much as the poor, but they did not love to wait and always stepped right up to the front when they arrived. Winifred Gresham received her paper from Philomena and kissed it too wetly, softly uttering, Sir Nathaniel Bacon. 
Philomena took the soggy thing back, smeared, ruined by too much wishing. She wrote the girl's name again. Winifred breathed, Nathaniel Bacon, with restrained fervor. A fine choice, Philomena encouraged as she took the scrap and dropped it into the box. Bacon was pocky, but if he suited Winifred, good luck to her. The girls grumbled as Alice launched on. You want some fellow, Marianne. Does his name begin with an F? To pin your name on his sleeve and flounce about the town. I heard the mumblings that this would be no Valentine's Eve with Mistress Millicent sick. Do you not remember before Mistress Millicent took over? Oh, dear girls, you must know, you must. Do not speak. I am speaking. There were two boys and they loved the same girl. Oh, love, who knows love? But they wanted her hugga-mugga to eat the apple. You gain my meaning. When they drew out from the Valentine's box their scrawny papers, oh my, each held up a blotted bit and swore the letters were J-A-N-E. They shook their bits so hard they seemed to poke out the eye of the other one. One-eyed lovers, who could say they desired the squinting man? And each boy pinned the scrap to his sleeve, swearing again and again that it said J-A-N-E. Jane is my valentine, said one. No, she is mine, said the other. Oh, such play for a Bathsheba of many teeth and a full bodice. And then, when it came to it, Jane wanted neither of them. Neither. She said it was not her hand that had written either scrap and took a third lad. Grammar was his name. Grammar and swore his paper had her name on it. Not that the writing could be made out for anything other than the scratching of a chicken. What a tumult. Those scorned boys flattened poor Grammar like a pancake. A bloody pancake. And to this day, Master Grammar walks with a stick. You have seen him tottering through the streets with a bent back. It was love, love, and not war that broke that good man. I heard he was lamed milking an angry cow, Honor spoke up. Well, you heard a lie, as sure as the devil is fork-footed. The magistrates wanted to put an end to Valentine's Day. Crucify our festivities as the Romans did the blessed Saviour's body. Mistress Millicent, the Solomon of Cheapside, saw away. Ten years she did her peace, queening over the Valentine's box with her own eyes, penning the names of all the maiden ladies with her own quill, all was clearly written and only entered once. And soon every girl, high and low, told the mistress the name of the boy they dreamt on. The girls prayed like Daniel in the lion's den that this peerless boy, whoever he was, would pull her name from the box and hold it high for all to see. And then the squealing! God save my poor ears from the squealing and mocking like the sinners they are. The virtue of modesty. 
our Mistress Militant was the matchmaker indeed. Even the rich girls, with their pretty well-learned hand, wanted our mistress to write their names and share in the good fortune she brought to all the lovers in the city. And now, and now, see, see, our Mistress Philomena, her mother walks in the shadow of death, but she bends to the task. Girls! Girls, speak the name of your boy love to bring you luck. We know, Alice, Marianne moaned. The next in line, Susanna, a vintner's daughter, confided, Oswin Waters. Philomena knew Oswin the tanner. He was at least 50 years old, a bit like an old leather strap himself. Brown, lean, well-worn and easy. Perhaps this young thing showed the most sense of anyone. Are you sincere? Philomena could not help asking. Susanna blushed. Yes, I think him handsome for one so old. Cuthbert pushed his way through the line. Mistress, there is a post from Sir Francis Darrell of Littlecote. Philomena stifled the urge to say, You jest with me, or you have misheard, or any number of expressions of disbelief. Put the letter in my office, Cuthbert. Philomena wrote and wrote until her hand ached and every last girl's name was in the Valentine's box. Mina, where are you going? Blackjack slid his arm around her waist. Dear sir, I have other business. I will have another Valentine, one who is not so toiling. As you will, but I must go. But his words pricked her, and as she stepped off, she pushed herself to say, Will you play the game on the morrow? For I have not put my own name in the drawing. Because I already wear it on my sleeve, my love. He kissed her and went off to have a drink with his fellows. Philomena ripped open Sir Francis Darrell's seal and hooted in triumph. He was coming as soon as he was able. He was most desirous of seeing his dear nephew, George Wyatt. And so there would be no doubt about his veracity. He would wear his father's pomander as George had bidden him. It was astonishing. The game had gone exactly as hoped. The surmise that Sir Francis had inherited the pomander had hit the mark. Philomena thought such good fortune could only be heaven-sent. She must tell Constance. Tonight, she could not wait to share these miraculous tidings. Taking Falk and her trusty tower, she made her way. The Thames felt cold enough to swirl above the river Styx, yet it was no longer frozen, and the barges were out in number. It was no sleepy night in London town. All was preparation for the festival tomorrow. Philomena could see the outlines of many travellers. Where were they going? Life would be such tedium without festivals and holidays. How she loved them. The boys perched behind her. Falk was expounding on whom he considered the most beautiful girls in the city. You do not consider the gentlewomen? Philomena asked. Mistress Arundel, we do indeed, but it is not seemly, Falk said. Tell me who takes your fancy. I will not pass judgment if you aim too high. This is Valentine's Day. The Lady Elin Snakenborg, cried Falk, his rumble rocking the boat. Sit still, you oaf, yelled the waterman. Falk breathed deeply, then his words tumbled out. She brings the jealousy of all the city. The whiteness of her skin comes not from the apothecary. Her blushes are from true modesty, not paint. I love the roundness of her, her, her eyeballs, and their colour is so pleasing. And what colour have her round eyeballs? Philomena cajoled. Uh, blue, he hesitated before confessing. Yes, mistress, she is well formed. You are blind, countered the tower. You bear an opinion? Philomena asked, surprised that the tower had spoken at such length. He thinks it is the Princess Cecilia, but he would not say, Falk said. 
the princess. She is not human in her beauty, and therefore does not count, Philomena joked. Then I am right, and Lady Elin is perfection, Falk insisted, setting the boat bouncing again. No more, the waterman yelled. I will not drown because you are an idle, chattering fool. This admonition silenced Falk. Philomena's mind turned to the image of the pomander. Her impatience to tell Constance the news increased with every pull of the oars. Constance, keep count for me. That's once, yelled Christina as she rounded the corner of the churchyard, her dress and cape two fistfuls of cloth before her, her feet making the snow spray as she ran. The unfortunate maid loped behind, fumbling for footing, hands knotted with her mistress's heavy train, careening as she struggled to keep it out of the drifts. As they passed out of Constance's view around the other side, Constance hoped Christina intended to give that girl something from her purse. And the link boy, he deserved more than the usual angel for his trouble, trying to keep his torch alight through all the hurry-scurry. Christina, Constance knew, was not thinking of servants as she ran. She was thinking only of her eagle. The Swedish tradition of basil pinned to pillows, the English tradition of running and chanting in the churchyard, all seemed a wasted effort. Surely Christina would dream of her Swedish boy tonight, as she did every night. But as for Constance herself, whose face would appear in her dreams this Valentine's Eve? Thou art my love, and I am thine, eagle, so draw me as thy valentine, eagle, my name was cast, and it you drew, eagle, fortune said to dream of you, eagle. Christina's scream of a song was drowned out by a wave of chatter. A group of gentlewomen appeared with a constellation of torches around them. The queen must have forbidden this lover's folly at Westminster, so they had hastened here to St. Martin's Church to indulge themselves. Oh, Constance! Mary hugged her. The girl was always warm. She was like a great fireplace, radiant hot. Catherine Hastings squeezed Constance's hand before running off, saying, That lady has already begun. Who is she? It is I, Christina, lover of Eagle, yelled back Christina over her shoulder. Oh, hurry, girls, it has gone midnight, said Bridget Skipworth, grabbing the nearest link boy and setting off at a bound, yelling her poem. Anna Windsor followed, her low stature making it hard to keep up with the others. But Lady Lettuce Knollys set out in an elegant trot, head held high. Mary paused beside Constance, asking, Why do you not run? Do you not wish to know your valentine? Charles's face popped into Constance's mind, putting her on edge. But she answered, I know it already, as do you. I know who you are to marry, but you might dream of another. Constance smiled. What had Mary heard, or did she only tease? You play cat and mouse with me, Mary chuckled, setting off and grabbing Constance's arm. It felt wonderful to run into the pack of screaming girls, maids, and link boys. Constance shrieked along with the others, laughing as she yelled. She wished there were a face that appeared when she closed her eyes. Bridget Skipworth overtook them. Mary paused and scooped up a handful of snow and hit Bridget in the head with it. A pox on you, Mary Fat Bum Howard! Bridget shook her head, not halting her momentum for even a stride. Catherine, why are you here? shouted Constance. You know you love Master Gilbert and he loves you. Christina, you are very red. I, I do not like to run, Christina puffed, but for, for love, for my eagle, I will run extra, so he will dream of me. Constance raised her voice, breaking the night with the chant that echoed around the churchyard. Thou art my love, and I am thine, so draw me as thy valentine. My heart was cast, and it you drew, fortune said to dream of you. Constance, 
Philomena, running to catch her with the tower and Falk at her side? How curious! Constance halted as Philomena caught up and her two escorts fell behind. Oh, Constance, I had to find you. I went to Bedford House. Elin told me you were here. Philomena was panting hard as she spoke. Darrell sent word. He is to come, just as we devised. It, it was a success. Constance tipped her head back. It cannot be true. Philomena nodded. He is coming, she said. The letter found him, and he read it, believed, and now is coming. Incredible. And he says he shall bring the pomanda. Constance put her hands to her cheeks. He, he has it? It seems so, Constance. I cannot believe it. I cannot. He has it. He has it. My. And if fortune continues on our side, he has never opened it because he does not have the key. But who has the key? Philomena led. We do, squealed Constance. Indeed, indeed. Thanks to the head-burying, key-saving Joan Whitnell, Philomena said. Thank God for strange bedfellows everywhere, Philomena. What a turn of luck. I had to tell you myself, Constance, directly in person. Now, give me the key so I shall have it when Sir Francis arrives. Constance fished for the chain that held it. I cannot feel it. Where is it? Did it fall? Do not fret, Constance. I am sure it is there. Philomena gestured to Falk. He held the lamp closer to Constance, who was feeling around her neck. Hold my glove, Philomena. With her bare fingers, she felt the chain. Here it is. Philomena grabbed it with her free hand, and they lifted it over Constance's head and put it around Philomena's neck. How long the days shall be until Sir Francis arrives? Constance struck her hand in the air, imagining her return to Stoner with Sir Thomas More's ring in her grasp. Oh, I am so happy, Philomena. Run with me. Thou art my love, and I am thine. So draw me as thy valentine. My name was cast, and it you drew. Fortune said to dream of you, called Philomena, as she circled the church, arm in arm with Constance. People are always saying Valentine's Day was just made up to sell Hallmark cards. I've heard that a lot, but it's not true. It's a very old festival. And in fact, most of the festivals we celebrate today they go back much earlier, even than the Tudor's time. Many of the festivals that are popular in the Tudor era were recreated festivals from pagan times. The Tudors just changed them up. They were no longer festivals of, you know, the harvest or of the sun, the solstice. They become celebrations of important days in the church calendar, such as Easter and Christmas are both on pagan holidays. Even celebrations of various saints' days are on pagans. And I think that was smart, not to sort of uproot people from their festivals. They don't want to lose this fun that they're used to having, and so they just combined them with the saints' festivals. Because there weren't as many, frankly, fun things to do. Going to Disneyland? People really, it gave them a way to mark through the year. The celebrations were breaks in a routine. They were a chance to spend time with your friends and neighbors, to cook special food, to dance, and to splurge. These days were just fun for many people. I've read that the fountains and the conduits were sometimes made to run with wine. That must have made a lot of fun for everybody. Can you imagine what that must have been like to have people splashing around in wine? <laughs> so a crazy. good time was had by all. And now holidays are so individualized for personal preference. So you celebrate in a way that seems best to you, privately or with friends, by you know having a certain meal that you like or going to a certain place, taking a holiday. 
I mean, you might go to church. And I mean, it's good to have that sort of visual way of celebrating. But there's also something lost when a whole community doesn't celebrate altogether. And in the Tudor time period, there were 17 major festivals, more than one a month. So there's always something fun and special brewing around the corner. There's something to look forward to as you're milking the cows or cleaning the floors, (laughs) getting your face scolded in the open hearth. You can think, oh, well, Twelfth Night is around the corner. (laughs) That'll be fun. Our girls are celebrating Valentine's Day in this chapter, which in our time period has absolutely nothing to do with religion anymore. But it actually was based on a religious holiday. Well, there are a couple of legends about how Valentine's Day came to be celebrated on February 14th. We do not believe there's one cause for how things came down to us. So some people believe it's rolled over from a pagan festival. I don't know if we consider that religious. Right. And and this festival was celebrated in mid-February, and it was a fertility and health festival, which makes sense because I guess you're sort of coming into the spring. And it was also a city purification festival. So the descriptions of it are incredibly wild. (laughs) You you don't think we should have this festival? No. So the (laughs) men of the town would strip naked. In in February? That sounds extremely cold. Well, maybe they drank wine to keep them warm. I hope so, yeah. Anyway, then they would sacrifice a dog and a goat. Oh, dear. Poor dog. I know. And poor goat. I feel bad for the goat as well. (laughs) I do too. And then the women of the town would line up to be whipped with the hides and entrails of the dead animals because there was a belief that that would make them fertile. That sounds like the definition of a pagan festival. It does. Everybody's naked and whipping each other with weird, bloody entrails. (laughs) I mean, what's interesting about it is, though, and which certainly has lasted, is there was a matchmaking lottery. And that's really fascinating because something like that survives into Tudor times. And there's an attachment with this idea of this February holiday that's about matchmaking. And we still have that. In this lottery, in the pagan lottery, the couple become a couple, and you know, the sexual sense, for the festival. And apparently they could stay coupled if it was, should we say, a good fit? Hmm. So it's sort of pagan tinder? <laughs> Valentine's Day definitely seems to be related to this crazy festival. No, it festival. does. It does. Yeah. So it, the question is, where does the saint part come in? I don't want to shock anybody, but apparently St. Valentine, who does give his name to the holiday, Valentine's Day, was not one individual, but several individuals. They were early Christian priests, all with the name Valentine. Which might seem weird if you don't speak Latin. Which we don't, but (laughs) apparently it was a very popular name. Yes, in Latin, Valentine means strong and healthy, so it was a popular name for boys. And this group of priests were sometimes collectively called the Valentini. Which sounds like a mob family. It does, the Sopranos and the Valentini. The Valentini priests were all martyred for being Christians, One of the earliest of the three Valentini priests was killed in Africa in the early 3rd century, and the other two were killed a bit later in Rome, but also in the 3rd century. They were sainted by the church for spreading Christianity in opposition to the Romans and dying horrible deaths. There's nothing love or romance-oriented about these Valentini. They were just, should we say, standard martyred, beheaded priests. But the Pope in 496 CE 
named February 14th this Saint's Day, but he didn't call them the Valentini. He didn't say it was St. Valentini's Day. He just said St. Valentine's Day. That was on top of the old Roman festival. And it's so crazy how these things evolve because the idea that St. Valentine had something to do with love appeared a thousand years later. And it had nothing to do with the story of the saint or saints. It had to do with the best-selling author, Geoffrey Chaucer, who wrote the Canterbury Tales. And he wrote in his very famous book that the feast of St. Valentine's Day was when the birds like bluebirds, regular birds, mated. He wrote in his Parliament of Fowls, For this was on St. Valentine's Day, when every bird cometh there to choose his mate. And that line made chocolatiers <laughs> a fortune. It doesn't, it's not even a line that you're like, Oh, oh that's so meaningful. But you know what? It appealed to people's imaginations. They liked that idea. St. Valentine's Day became linked to bird mating season because of this one line. Perhaps it was also because it was close to the date of this old Roman festival. And that was sort of preserved somehow. I mean, it's just really hard to know how these yes. things happen. Maybe they were looking for something fertility-oriented, mm -hmm. but now it had, was wrapped up with the spring. Love. And, yeah. So the book was very popular, and all the European nobility began sending love notes during bird mating season, which was when they already had the tradition of celebrating the Saints' Day. The very first use of Valentine as a term of endearment that we know of, because there could have been others, we just haven't discovered them or we don't know of them, was written by the medieval poet Charles, Duke of Orléans, in 1415, and it's actually in the British Library. So go see it if you have a chance. The next time I'm in London, I will definitely go and see it. So he wrote it during his 25-year imprisonment in the Tower of London after being captured in the very famous Battle of Agincourt. So in February 1415, he calls his wife very gentle Valentine, and he does not whip her with intrals. <laughs> oh, dear. And poor her. She was alone for 25 years. I that know. must have been hard. But he used his years in the tower well. He learned English, and he wrote more than 500 poems in both English and French. So he came out of there bilingual. And if it's correct that the Canterbury Tales were published in 1400, their cultural impact, it's felt pretty quickly. You mean because he's writing that to my Valentine yes. in 1415? It's already gotten going, yeah. this kind of Valentine. Well, he had a lot of time to read. I guess he did. But by the time of our story, the Valentine's Festival has been completely cemented. Because in 1537, it was none other than Mr. Love himself, King Henry VIII, that made Valentine's Day an official holiday in England. It just seems wrong that he would be the one. Well, he's married to Jane Seymour. I don't know the timing, but maybe his son has just been born. Maybe he's feeling pretty good. It's interesting that he would be the one because he certainly loved to fall in love. He didn't so much like to stick with the lady. And the thing is, under Elizabeth, Valentine's Day, it's just grown and grown and grown, and it's a romantic occasion marked by gift giving. You know, then is now, there was something about this holiday that was about love that really appealed to people. And you could give a gift to your true love. And there were also many popular community activities that were around love and mating. In our chapter, we put Philomena in charge of one of the most famous that we've talked about earlier, drawing names. Right, which connects to the pagan idea of the community lottery, right? Right. So a French tourist of the period, Monsieur Misson, wrote about this tradition in 
England. On the eve of the 14th of February, St. Valentine's Day, an equal number of maids and bachelors get together. Each writes their true or some feigned name upon separate billets, which they roll up and draw by way of lots, the maids taking the men's billets and the men the maids, so that each of the young men lights upon a girl that he calls his valentine, and each of the girls upon a young man which she calls hers. By this means, each has two valentines, but the man sticks faster to the valentine that is fallen to him than to the valentine to whom he is fallen. Fortune having thus divided the company into so many couples, the valentines give balls and treats to their mistresses, wear their billets several days upon their bosoms or sleeves, and this little sport often ends in love. I wonder how often it really did end in love. It does sort of mess with our preconceived idea that all these marriages at this period were arranged and were sort of business arrangements. And I'm not debating that that was the case, you know, very much so for the upper classes. But this idea that somehow sport often ends in love gives us a sense that it was a little more random and romantic maybe than we think. And also that the tutors seem to like to have a good time. They do. But maybe, again, and this is our presentism. He says, and this little sport often ends in love. But does that mean marriage. A marriage? Is he just saying it ends in people admiring each other, courtly love, love? We equate the two and maybe they didn't. I do love that it's where the expression hard on your sleeve comes from. Because once they wrote the name down, they would literally wear it on their mm-hmm. sleeve. And I just think that's so cute. And it does make you think of a nicer version of the pagan lottery. You randomly pick a valentine. You you don't then flog them with entrails, but you, you know, you buy them gifts, which seems a little nicer. But it is the same idea. I, I guess what we're saying is it couldn't just be random that on this day that happened in February, they had a lottery of love and that the pagan festival also had that lottery of love and that somehow they're not connected. I mean, they have to have been connected in some way. Of course, some people wanted to rig this. Oh, sure. And they wanted to have their true love choose them or be chosen by their true love. Right. Yeah. So Shakespeare, in Hamlet, he writes this about Ophelia. Ophelia wants to be the first thing Hamlet sees on Valentine's Day because another random way that you get a Valentine is that the first person you see on Valentine's Day is your Valentine. Don't draw their name. It's just that you see them because Ophelia says, all in the morning be time and I am made at your window to be your Valentine. Poor Ophelia is standing in the window hoping that Hamlet will choose her. The part in the play where she says this is when she's kind of going crazy. So Yeah, yeah. it's not good to be Hamlet's valentine. The kind of chance element of who is your valentine is part of the misrule that's so much part of every Tudor festival. And of so many Tudor plays, especially in Shakespeare. And Shakespeare uses Valentine's Day in a play that is all about misrule and random love and lotteries and love, and that's Midsummer Night's Dream. At the end of Midsummer Night's Dream, Theseus says, Good morrow, friends. St. Valentine is past. Begin these wood birds to couple now. 
just referring to so many things. And here we go with the birds again, which is going back to Chaucer and the misrule attached to an ancient festival. The play Midsummer Night's Dream supposedly taking place in Greece in a forest with Theseus and Hippolyta getting married. When you sort of unpack it a little yes. bit, you find all these different kinds of threads and all these different traditions that get rolled up into one. It's wonderful. And in this chapter, the girls have their own misrule as they run around the church singing the names of their true love. And that's also a tradition. The song they sing in our story was the one that they actually would have sung in this period. And there's a country version. It's also a very fun song, just like in our story. So girls on Valentine's Eve stand on the church porch until midnight, and then they walk home scattering hemp seed, and they sing this little ditty. Hemp seed I sow, hemp seed I mow. He that will my true love be, come rake this hemp seed after me. Ooh, that's sexy. Uh. You get some hemp seed raking. <laughs> well, hemp seed overall is just a pretty sexy word. <laughs> and then, what? You see a guy raking hemp seed and you just run over and say, you are the one, you hemp seed raker. A country lad could look pretty hot raking hemp seed. Again, going back to this fertility festival, they're sowing Seeds. seeds and he's raking them and she's scattering them all these traditions should we say sort of open the door to let someone know you like them on valentine's day so part of the misrule of valentine's day is that a woman can actually let a man know that she likes him another tradition is that a woman ambushes a man <laughs> and says a little poem to him good morrow valentine i go today to wear for you what you must pay a pair of gloves next Easter day. So that poem means that she likes him and that he is supposed to send her a pair of gloves for her to wear on Easter. That shows that they like each other. But I guess if he didn't like her, then he didn't send the gloves. And it's interesting, again, because he, she's supposed to wear them on Easter. And this is another moment when the entire community would come together to go to church because everybody had to go to church on Easter. If your lady love wore the gloves, you would see her wearing them at church. It culminates into another Christian festival, which everybody's going to celebrate together. There could be a lot of waiting between Valentine's and Easter. So I guess you just had to bite your uncovered, ungloved nails during that time while you waited to see if he was going to send you some gloves. There's another tradition which we liked, and this is again on Valentine's Eve. A woman would pin five bay leaves to her pillow, one on each corner, and then one in the middle. And this was said to bring dreams of her future husband. And I wonder why it's a bay leaf because all these spices and, you know, they had specific meanings. So mm. another version of this is just to strew bay leaves and then a little rose water on your bed and then put on a clean nightgown that's turned inside out. <laughs> okay. And this also had a little poem. Good Valentine, be kind to me. In dreams, let me my true love see. But it's important to remember that these are supposedly not incantations or pagan. They are simply traditions. Although it sounds a little incantation-y to me. <laughs> they are so fun. And they kind of give you a little personal ritual about falling in love. But Constance is a little befuddled this Valentine's because she doesn't know who she would like to see when she's got her nightgown on inside out and she's strewing around her bay leaves and her rose water. But the good news is for her that Francis Darrell is coming to London. Yes, and hopefully he'll have a clue to the relic or even the pomander. And that's her real heart's desire. 
So don't forget, if you're enjoying the story, support us and buy some Tudor Time Machine swag. Yes, go to our Tudor Time Machine Facebook page, hit the Shop Now button, and shop, shop, shop. And join us next time for more Time's Riddle and more Tudor-minded talk. <laughs>